you are owning a bigger percentage of the company as your career grows, a bigger percent of a smaller company. So even bigger uh, relative to the size of the company. So the equity compensation, one thing I realized was that it increasingly becomes a gamble, but you have to make intelligent guesses about the success. So you have to do your own research about equity, your evaluation, the future potential of this company. Like when I was deciding between with the compensation at Databricks, for example, the obvious com- comparison point for me was, uh, you know, first of all, how does it compare directly with my Facebook compensation? But also, if I project to the future, how does the compensation look like if I believe in this company, if I believe in this vision? So that's something I did quite a bit as I was, you know, projecting future income uh, at Databricks. I was like, I really believe in the mission of this company. I really believe that this company will do amazing. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk, the podcast for financially focused technology employees. Are you working for equity? Do you have questions on how your career and money work together? Then welcome. Every week we discuss strategies and tactics for how to grow your career, build wealth, and reach your financial and lifestyle goals. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. And today I want to answer one of the questions that's on many people's minds, which is where should we start our career? Do we start at an early stage startup where there's a lot of opportunity or do we start at a mature public company where we can grow our skills and also get equity compensation that's liquid right away? Today we're going to talk with Retender Data who has grown his career working at Google and then Facebook and now has taken his opportunity to trade time and talent at a pre-IPO company, Databricks. I want to dig into the conversation to help understand what helped him successfully grow his career from walking in as an intern to ultimately running teams of up to 200 people. The second half of the conversation, I want to take advantage of the fact that he is an AI, artificial intelligence, and machine learning expert to understand how this is going to impact the workplace of the future. I know there's a lot of noise in the marketplace out there. AI is taking people's jobs. AI is going to replace people. I want to get to the truth and understand what he really thinks from his vantage point. I'm excited for everybody here to meet Retender today. Let's talk to him right now. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm excited to introduce everyone today to Retendra Datta. He's the head of applied AI at Databricks. But that's not where he started. He started coming out of school with a PhD in computer science and walked in the door of Google as an intern. Yes, you heard that PhD to intern, nine years later left as a senior staff engineer to then go to Facebook or ultimately head up a 200-person team of reels and video recommendations. He has an amazing career story. He's also the voice that can help us understand what is the future of AI in the workplace going forward. I'm excited to introduce everybody today to Ritendra Data. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Christopher, for inviting me. My pleasure. I mean, let's let's get right into it. I think that what sticks out in your story is you walk out, you've worked so hard to get a PhD, and then you walk in the door of Google as an intern. How did that feel? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I was a poor graduate student. I was making <laughs> like, I don't know, like just about enough money to save a couple hundred bucks 
every month mm. after paying everything so like first the big jump was money related which is like wow that's a lot of money in 3 months i earned more than i used to earn as a grad student in a in a year probably year and a half and so uh, financially this was a huge deal but mm. more importantly like i suddenly got exposed to a different world altogether of talking to people working with people that just deeply care about people mm. uh, and care less about research in and of itself publishable research specifically because that used to be the culture that is still is the culture in academia where publishable research is the main focus mm. uh, except in a very small number of places where publishable research is not absolutely front and center of how people are valued like the MITs and Stanfords of the world have a little bit of a uh, leeway in terms of you know what research goes on and how it's valued and whether it's published or not is less important uh, and it's more important to generate value through academic research but that's not the case in most universities in the world mm. so i had a completely eye opening experience at google where people didn't really care about publishable research they cared about research they 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 were researching products they were researching experiences and early days of google like 2008 google when i was an intern there it was like the literally the best place to work i mm. couldn't imagine a better place to work at that time and i've been in the industry for a while that that was the best times <laughs> and what and yeah. what were some of the things that made it that way like what what were some of the parts of of the culture that that helped you really grow and flourish i think part of it was my personal transition very quickly from thinking about what i can do for myself to what i can do for others very mm. quickly like that i think i read this book and i i keep, I keep referring to that book seven habits of highly success highly uh successful so people peop- yep yeah. that's right stephen yeah. covey the St- covey's book is such a bible for me mm. one of the one of the habits is like put yourself in other people's shoes and as soon as i en- enter this uh, you know internship immediately that happened to me i'm like hey this is the first time in my life that i'm working on a piece of code that runs for a billion users back in 2008 wow. there were a billion probably a billion user or close to a billion users using google search every day and i was working on search so i was like i make this change to this code a billion people are affected by this like that that was mind boggling right yes. and when you do that then everything else becomes pretty small like how much money i personally make even how much my money the, i was in the google pittsburgh office inside of the carnegie mellon university campus mm. so how much money money google pittsburgh makes or cmu makes or you know whoever like the smaller entities suddenly become less important and the grand scheme of things suddenly emerge where the little changes i'm making is impacting people from around the world 200 countries mm-hmm. or whatever and you know every day a little bit of the my work is showing up in their you know little you know mobile phones or at that time like mobiles were not as big as like right you know yeah the, the desktops and, and yeah laptops were yeah So you you went to work you're growing your career at Google you know when did you start thinking that you were ready for management Yeah so that that happened um very organically so uh, Google has this concept of a tech lead a tech mm. lead it's a much celebrated thing like if you all aspire to become tech leads even though uh, if it's it's a very fuzzy concept what is a tech lead 
a tech lead is someone that is responsible for the team but not for the management part of it right. like uh, they they build roadmaps for the team like what are you going to work on in the next quarter or next half or whatever but not uh, you know how are you doing individually so there was this gap between like what a tech lead did to a, what a manager did and at some point of time i found myself spending so much time with the people i was tech leading that it made sense to just become a manager and support their uh, careers as well like the main difference was i was already t- caring for their career but right. i was not representing their career i was not going into a, a you know a performance review session and talking about their and i had to i had to translate that to their official manager right and i i realized that like you know why not why not cut the middle person and just <laughs> do it myself and like it was very organic my managers thought that you know i was ready he said hey why why don't you manage i had literally had three people in my first team it was just me and three others and very honestly i didn't do a great job as a manager when i first became a manager but that's a separate story <laughs> yeah well i i think it is difficult because in it, it's interesting that you bring up that google model because uh now outside i've worked at companies outside of google never worked inside of google but as many companies study the management style that is a concept that's used outside and this is how i explain it to people is you first become a lead it, that can be a tech lead that can also be a business lead where your job is to now divide up the work and res- deliver the results but to your point you don't worry about coaching and managing somebody through their career and all the things around that and you also don't put money in their pocket or take it out those are things that you learn later and arguably while those can take less time you know as far as like having the annual review or the quarterly review can take you know there's less physical time in there but that takes more skill and you have to be very adept at that so that does i would argue you know and i'd be curious your thoughts but it takes time to make some mistakes understand how to correct that to really develop management style that you you can relate with and really works yeah yeah i uh, the the classic mistake i to what you just said like the classic mistake i made was micromanagement mm-hmm. it's like a horrible thing to do but you don't learn it till till it impacts you so one of the things this is my i'm starting with a failure story because it's it's always like the building block to further success is that's right i had one of the three people on my team after i got them promoted left my team because mm. they they were like okay you helped my career but i'm not enjoying working with you so mm. that was a fascinating or eye opening experience where i was like this is the difference between a tech lead and a tech lead uh, like a tech lead manager there at right. google they call tech lead managers which is like a manager of a small team but someone who's very almost like an individual contributor but with some management responsibilities i was in that role and out of three when one person leaves that's 33% of your team just gone and i could not accept it and i was like completely shattered but that really helped me understand that there's a huge difference between a tech lead and a manager to to your point right understanding the uh, the personal aspects of what inspires what motivates uh, someone to work was a new thing into as as I went into the manager role so it's it was pretty interesting and so as you started growing obviously you changed that and you said I'm going to go correct that where did you start getting you know management training and sometimes 
we get formal management training. Sometimes we find mentors. Sometimes we find peers that are outside of our particular company. How did you start finding resources to grow yourself as a manager? Yeah. I mean, all my life, again, this varies from person to person. All my life, I've learned through observing others. I, I observe mm. very keenly every single person's, every single step. I, that's something I'm known for, for being extremely observant. So I, I often spend a lot of time watching other successful managers. I watched during these performance review sessions, I was paying attention, very close attention to pairwise conversations, to to what was resolving problems and what was making the problems worse. Like observing my peers, my mm. peer managers was one of the best things to do. My manager was also, uh, his name is Greg Friedman. He At that time, he was my manager and I learned and a half of the man, empathetic management from him. Oh, like he was incredibly empathetic toward everyone. He really understood where people came from. He was not super deeply technical, but he was super deeply involved in understanding people's psychologies and apply that every day to his management style. And it just was like the fact that someone can be that empathetic was eye-opening. I'll say, I'll say one more thing. Yeah. One other thing I learned... Um, this was probably right before I became a manager. Google used to have this training called the Edge Training. Um, that was also like very eye-opening from a man learning to manage, learning to work with others. Uh, they have I I've recently heard that they don't have that anymore. But it was one of those like three-day experiences in some like place in California, <laughs> some like isolated place in California where you just you're hanging out with a bunch of colleagues at Google. And you're doing team building exercises and you're giving each other very harsh feedback with with no prejudice. People you'll not meet again. And I actually didn't meet those people ever again. But we had this like two, three hour session where we would each give each other the harshest possible feedback around how we operated with each other during some team building exercises. And that was, again, such a small thing. So heartbreaking. Like I never, I, that day I learned things about myself that I never, you know, observed because you, you don't always see yourself in the mirror. You don't always right. like observe yourself in the third person. So like a, somebody who has no reason to tell me bad things about myself. So somebody who has nothing to gain or lose telling me this, like because all our lives we are surrounded by people who have incentives to say things in a certain way. That's primarily like you're related to them, you're working with them, they need something from you, you need something from them. Suddenly you're in this, you know, isolated place with a bunch of colleagues that you'll never meet again. And they're telling you certain things. I'm like, that is the most honest thing you can do. And you learn so much through wow. that because, and you understand the connection between where people are coming from and what they're saying, the context behind the feedback. And that's also another thing I learned that, you know, context is so important when you mm -hmm. give or get feedback. Because if somebody has incentive to take your job, replace yeah. you with something, their feedback is probably not the best one to take. I, actually, Mark Zuckerberg right. is a pretty impressive CEO, like from, from within. One of the things, he gets so much flack externally but internally he's actually quite respected because of because he's very direct and honest one thing that he always says he's extremely criticized right like he's one yeah. of the most uh, you know he gets a lot of i mean he has his follies i personally have some concerns about that too but <laughs> one thing that he he says which is interesting is the amount of negative press he gets he, he personally says i don't pay attention to all of them 
but i pay attention to the ones where i know that they have they have good intentions they want mm-hmm. me to succeed uh, so that actually filters down feedback and you grow faster because of that right i think that is very insightful is understanding the context and who's behind it and being able to filter out the stuff that that is essentially noise so as you're growing your career at some point you you know to get to facebook where you're managing larger teams of around 200 at some point you actually start managing managers and really start scaling your team at what point in your career was that i did the same thing my manager did to me which is I turned my tech leads into tech lead managers at Google. Ah. So that was the first time, like, uh, I think it was 2017, probably. Okay. Six, seven years back. It was very quick. I actually, like, within a year or two, I started, my team started growing so much that I needed more managers. And I think I found the perfect fit in certain people who wanted to manage and I needed them. So it was mutual. And so I turned them into managers. They, and I think the process was very interesting because, like, again, my personal experience of failure experiences, I saw in them <laughs> and I gave them examples of how how the, the consequences of doing that weren't great. And actually, I thought they sort of took that feedback and moved faster because I was such a recent manager myself. Mm. I was able to like coach them through that recent transition. Um, I, I think so than my manager. Yeah. Well, I think that's really powerful is when all of a sudden, when, when you're, you have gone through some of those things recently and it's very real and visceral for you, you can turn around and I think provide that lesson, you know, very quickly to other people. As you started scaling your team, did you start getting further from, let's say the technology and the coding on a day-to-day basis? And how did that how did that feel? I know for myself, I, as my career grew and I started managing larger and larger teams, it became less about me uh, hands-on in the technology to really guiding, you know, larger impact through the teams. How did that? How did that work for you? You know, like I love the technical aspects of my job so much that it was very hard to give up. Actually, mm. for me, and I even today, even in today's date, I am so technical that you know a lot of my reports tell me they're very surprised because they're not used to managers of large teams that are very technical technical to the extent that i i'm never i'm never satisfied especially the mathematical and statistical aspects Mm. of machine learning and ai i'm so interested in that and i always find that's where i add value by fixing assumptions people make about you know the statistics and probability and 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 the data science aspects the deeper data science the mathematical aspects of machine learning and ai i i still continue to do that one thing i've realized is like one thing that although i've been coding since i was eight years old it wasn't very hard for me to give up coding on a daily basis what was what is much harder for me and i i still haven't given up is when i see something wrong with the with a design with software design mm. or in, in the case of ai and machine learning the mathematics and statistics that are used to decide you know what is statistically significant whether the change is meaningful or not those kinds of things i, I get really bothered when uh, my team or my peers uh, brush off uh, brush uh, what do you call it like uh, you know, do away with the details because they're presenting to me. Right. I was like, I'm not interested in the high level. I get the high level. I want to see whether you're doing the details right. And nine out of 10 times, I find flaws in flaws in those things. And so mm. I continue to, even today, like yesterday, I had a meeting where I was like, I was writing the equation for how to evaluate some things at Databricks. And 
I really enjoyed like and everyone was like hmm we didn't think of it that way that, okay that's value so I have j- always maintained a two like a, a, a dual uh, personality one where I'm an empathetic leader because empathy is everything in that that aspect the other is as a technical uh, design reviewer or what do you uh, like a architect i wouldn't say architect i would say reviewer of architectures reviewer of designs i've definitely switched from doing my work to reviewing other people's work a lot more and the, i stay technical through reviews and through inputs in small ways and and draw the line for where i stop contributing and my team starts to take overs because i know that you know i could keep going but <laughs> I, i think it's very tempting when you're in into it but i i have learned the art of like stopping at a point where it's no longer adding value uh, right where or it's not it's it's starting to intrude into my a lot of people a lot of actually like there's a uh, sorry i'm taking a, a long this yeah. is a very good question to be honest this is a fantastic question because like i'm thinking about it every, all day every day and i've done so for years one very specific thing that is relevant here is if i am too technical what does it do for my team how do they feel about that actually mm. a lot of people feel like it's a lack of freedom because if your manager is constantly technical then they don't you know they don't get to be technical themselves they they feel like they have to always like review with you like it creates a culture where again the micromanagement right. creeps in, bleed in yeah. so yeah so then i have to spend a lo- like 9 out of 10 times i have to say i'm not going to go into the details because i trust you one out of 10 times i'm i'm going to do that i'm going to use that as a way to demonstrate how mm. you you how if you were in my place how would you review your own work the remaining nine times and so that's a good way to like train but also like maintain a high standards because we have to balance mm. all of these things yeah. we do in in i i think this conversation is so important because i do think and you mentioned before that uh your mentor slash manager when you were at google he was not as much of a technical leader right and he may have been more of a business focused leader and as we continue to grow our careers inside of technology companies we can grow in different dimensions we can be a technical leader that's an empathetic manager we can be a business focused leader that understands the technology and i think more than anything it's important to know ourselves to lead yourself as you are you're realizing i'm very technical i could fall down the slope of micromanagement but in reality i want to now leverage that turn that into a superpower that says we need to set standards and you come from a very unique background having the phd in computer science loving the math if you get a phd in computer science it's less about coding and more about the math in some of those those bigger um ideas behind it but i I think personally that adds tremendous value to the team because then you're you know a coach in that direction you're coaching them to raise their standards and managing yourself saying I'm not going to slip down into micromanagement and do that everywhere. Yeah completely like I think that's exactly a good it's a great summary of what I what I was saying. 
Yeah, well, I, I think about that too. And this is where, as I you know talk with people today, coach some people today, I try to let them know that understand what type of manager you are. And if you're applying for positions or if you're looking for promotions, be able to describe that to your future manager or who you're interviewing with so they know what you're going to get. Because I also know there's different leaders out there that are looking for somebody you know, uber technical with a little bit of business or no, we actually want to be very business focused with a little bit of technical. It's all out there. You just have to know who you are. Yeah. So as you started growing your career, the one thing we talk about here is, you know, equity compensation. I'm curious from yourself, you, you know, coming from an academic background, you, you start getting a salary and you're like, okay, you know, this is amazing. I mean, I know for myself coming out of school, you start making the money and think this is great. At the same time, there is this equity component that gives us so much more that pegs us to a completely different value as we're working in tech, especially larger tech. What was your journey to learn about equity compensation and then knowing your value and what to ask for as you got promotions or, or change companies? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question because this was like we all understood money as graduate students, we, uh, like cash, basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, not money, cash, right? Hard. <laughs> like, you know, you, you get cash, like, oh, you have a bank account, you get a direct deposit every two weeks or whatever. Yeah. And then suddenly there's this equity thing. It's so much more complex to reason about mm. equity. There's so, suddenly like there's a non-deterministic aspect to compensation where you have to make a decision all the time or every every so now, every so often you have to make a decision should i sell this stock uh, and so first of all like when i started out equity was a very small portion of my compensation as is typical as you become a bigger and bigger part of a company equity becomes a much bigger and bigger part of your compensation this is not new information most people know this but also means that you start to own a part of the, a bigger and bigger part of the company Right. And so you are accountable for the success of the company in a way that you never felt earlier because you're just getting your paycheck. Like, how does it matter? I must cog in a wheel. But like the a larger piece of equity changes your perception of your own company from feeling like you're a cog in a wheel to a much more, a more stronger driver of like the company's success, especially now that I've, I've, one thing you may have noticed is I've progressively worked at smaller and smaller companies like Facebook. When I joined was about 20,000 people. When I left was 100,000. Now it's mm -hmm. 180 or 190,000. It's crazy. Facebook, when I joined, it was 30,000. When I left and before that, the rounds of layoffs, it was 88,000 people. And then layoffs brought it down mm. to something, something in the 60,000s. Still very big. Databricks is in the mid 10, like 5,000, 6,000. I, I don't know exact numbers in that range, right? Right. Much smaller company, like six, six to 7,000. I don't know exact numbers, but now suddenly you are a bigger player in a smaller company. So it's it has a very direct connection suddenly to like equity because uh, you are owning a bigger percentage of the company mm -hmm. as your career grows. A bigger percent of a smaller company, so even bigger uh, relative to the size of the company. So the equity compensation, um, one thing I realized was that it increasingly becomes a gamble, but mm. you have to make intelligent guesses about the success. So you have to do your own research about equity, your evaluation, the future potential, 
of this company. Like when I was deciding between with the compensation at Databricks, for example, the obvious com- comparison point for me was, uh, you know, first of all, how does it compare directly with my Facebook compensation? Right. But also if I project to the future, how does the compensation look like if I believe in this company, if I believe in this vision? So that's something I did quite a bit as I was, you know, projecting future income uh, at Databricks. I was like, I really believe in the mission of this company. I really believe that this company will do amazing. It went, it got into AI before AI was big. Mm. Like if you look at Ali Goz, our CEO, uh, who's by the way, pretty amazing. Uh, if you hear his conversation from like four or five years back, he's saying, he literally is saying this before anyone else. I mean, some people are, but he's right. particularly saying data and companies that do data and AI are going to win. And, you know, four years down the line, uh, everyone is a date, like focusing on data and AI, actually. That's so right. He was ahead of everyone. So that's why I believe in his vision. And I believe that he, he can get it right with his, you know, predictions of the future. So that's why I was like, I'm going to use that projection of the future of equity for for a late stage startup to, to decide. And it made it made complete sense for me to move. Yeah. And in. And- some of the things you said there are so important that people think about when they are looking at companies to go to work for and that you have to have your own thesis. You have to do your due diligence on the company. And this is, you know, one of the, what I advocate for is you need to think like an investor. You're investing your time and talent that you could be continuing to remain at a company where if it's public, you're getting liquidity, you're getting additional capital coming in in the form of equity as compensation versus now you're going to a pre-IPO company. Obviously it's, it's a unicorn. It, it, I think it could be traded today on a secondary market. So there could be some liquidity options, but you have to have a thesis. I also think that your career is this similar to mine, and there is a pattern there that I've seen with a lot of other executives where they go to work for public companies first and understand what do successful public companies look like. Then when you have that framework and you understand from a management perspective, from a operations perspective, setting standards perspective, then when you go and you start selecting companies to go to work for that are pre-IPO, you're already going to have a filter that can filter out a lot of things that you don't want because you realize that doesn't have, and and some of it can be very quantitative and some of it could be more qualitative where it's like, this doesn't have the feel of success. Something's not right here versus you looked at Databricks. You started seeing all the indicators that said, okay, this number one fits my thesis, but you're also looking at the team members, the way that they're communicating, I'm sure saying, okay, I can see being an owner in this company and us being successful with where we want to go. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it's, it goes both ways, right? They're also investing in people like me who have worked at public companies and who have basically understood the you know success paradigms. And also, they're also betting on like the equity packages are pretty strong at, at these, these levels right so yeah. they're also using their precious limited equity uh, abilities like to you know compensate you know people like me who have worked at public companies because they want us to bring in some of the like the uh, rigor 
that we see in more mature companies. So that's it, it works both ways. Yeah, it does. And that that to me is then that's your leverage. Your leverage is the more you can articulate your story, what you've delivered at Google, what you've delivered at Facebook, even some of the training and how you've been focused on this AI space, the length of time you've been there. That's all, as you sit down at the negotiating table, that's all leverage that shows them, here's the value that I can bring to the table, but allows you to also ask for what you're worth. Yeah. I mean, now I'm in the process of hiring people (laughs) and- I find it like at Databricks and a lot of people actually do that. They actually, when they have a conversation with me and they're trying to get a job, a lot of times they're actually pitching themselves in a way that I have not seen in the past. Like earlier they would just like type in there like, oh, Databricks is an incredibly high bar company. So like I've never seen a company of this high bar of technical talent for technical talent. I don't know about the other functions, like all the people who have like, done really well and i thought were amazing are getting you know rejections left and right (laughs) it's so my point is that it's become very very like oh it's not enough to write code like these candidates are now trying to sell themselves and saying hey here's what i can bring to the table and i think that's actually a winning strategy when they do it tastefully Uh, it shouldn't be cringe but they should right. like try to sell themselves to to companies that are competitive and have a have many many more qualified candidates that they that they can hire. Then your di- differentiator becomes how do you sell to to the company beyond just the just being able to show that you're technically strong. Yeah, and that's into. I guess what I'm hearing is is I know when when I was at Splunk and Splunk was post IPO and we were growing, we had a very similar scenario and. What I found would differentiate people is a lot of people could walk in the door and tell you what they did and they could say that and that was very interesting, but they couldn't tell you so what, meaning they could say, here's what I do, but they can't articulate the results that they delivered. And at a company like Databricks, that's what they're looking for is not just somebody who has built the widget, but somebody who's built the widget, put that inside of the machine and understood the goals of the company to be able to align it to that and win. They're looking for that that extra bit that people can articulate because that's what's going to make a good company owner because that's what you're coming in as. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. Yeah. Going back to what you said before, you're now working for smaller and smaller companies to get more and more equity. Was that a a strategy that you had been focused on or was that something that's just happening organically? I'll be honest with you. I don't have a very uh, ambitious money plan, to be mm-hmm. really honest with you. I don't have a very organized way of thinking about how much money I want to make. I have some targets for, you know, you know, uh, for the future, but it's not super, uh, it's nothing like some of, some of the other people. I, I know someone who said they have 12 different money managers that they work with. And you know how many money managers oh. I work with? Zero. <laughs> I manage my own money. I do my own taxes. I'm far simpler in that sense, right? Like right. I'm not a very, I'm, I'm reasonably technical to be able to understand the tax code and be able to file my taxes even though with all the equity taxes taxation i mean buying and selling homes has become a nightmare for taxation but i did it (laughs) 
but like at the same time i didn't have a lot of clear strategy tra- strategy around like oh here's what my trajectory will look like if i went mm-hmm. to a pre ipo company here's what it would look like if i continued my decision for careers have been far more been about what i find it interesting yeah. but i won't i recommend that to everyone i'm so passionate about technology and i'm i can go so deep that that's that's my that's the joy i get on a daily basis money is secondary to me in that sense but it is also really important because you know it changes lifestyles it allows you to retire early and all of that i understand that but i have not personally not been i'm i'm not saying i'm very proud of this <laughs> i'm just saying that i'm not very organized when it comes to managing my money or creating a career strategy around money my career strategy has always been around my biggest thing which is a little bit different from all of these is how is my day to day and i learned this from one of my managers at facebook he used to always tell me like you should optimize for a few different things and one of them has to be how is your day to day you do would you take a pay cut to have a better day to day and i always used to say yes but effectively i have by joining a pre ipo company i have taken a pay cut um, <laughs> not 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 on paper on paper i haven't taken a pay cut right but in terms of cash that comes in on a weekly basis i'm not getting those like you know uh, facebook stocks that i used to get right because right. and get sell that sell them immediately and all of that that strategy doesn't work but my day to day is the main thing i use to determine my career path to be really honest with you yeah well and and that's okay people are looking for an opportunity to ultimately pursue their passions right and some people feel uh, that the corporate environment where you're you know getting a paycheck and and ultimately working for somebody else can be too stifling so they want to use it as a tool to get to somewhere else where they can pursue their passions but ultimately some people do love technology you know when you work in those companies you get a front row seat to the future and that's yes. an exciting part to be of exciting. every day and then when you're working with a team that's excited and is highly technical and you're building great product. I mean, it's it's very similar to operating, I think, in other functions at very high level of performance, right? You think about F1, Formula One, you know, big technical winning things. I mean, we you win on the technical um, field as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because one thing that's been common throughout my career is working on bleeding edge stuff everywhere I've been. Is I like every time I've worked on something, I have like looked around like who else is doing this? I'm like, no one is doing this thing that I am doing at this scale or this. No one is doing this, th- this thing, period. So I've been very fortunate to have always worked in areas where I just my day to day is good because of the work that I'm doing. And even if I ignore everything else about my career, but that's, yeah. And one of the things I'll just add that one of the things I've found to be a recipe for success for people who want to make a lot of money, people who want to like to, to your podcast theme, right? Yes. To, to, to be successful, I find that some of the people who make the most money are the ones who did not focus on money for at least some period of time in their right. career, where they were like so, they developed their skills and their abilities and their, you know, the their passion to the extent where like they became so employable <laughs> yeah. in some sense that people were competing for their talent because they're like, people talk about, uh, you know, especially senior leaders, people talk about people all the time 
how is this person how is, should we get this person should we get that person it will be amazing if we can hire that person oh this person will completely come in and change the way we work on things that conversation people need to have that conversation about you and that's when you start level then you do the interview and then you're great and then they're so desperate to have you that they have that leverage uh to like ask for more money or whatever like you know equity or whatever and then you know they will oblige if you're that good if they and and if you're like moderate then you suddenly hit a ceiling for how much negotiation power you have it's true yeah. it's true and in if you focus a part on your of your career on looking for the opportunities to deliver results, finding passionate people to work with that will, will help you build those deep skills. That's what I call your career capital. And that's going to give you leverage later on. And I think that the first part of your career, if you focus on building the career capital, you can then go on and, and leverage it. I, I didn't start working for significant equity till 10 years of my career into my career because to your point, I was focused on how do I build skills? How do I do great work? And, and to your point, be on that, on that bleeding edge versus uh, seeking the money. And then ultimately the money came because then you have that in the bag and then you can start making very interesting choices of where you want to work. Yeah. And, and essentially what you're doing by doing what you just said is you're moving yourself to the extreme edge of the curve of like, like skill like how rare is your skill set right as you move more and more toward the rareness you're like the supply demand you know the standard microeconomic theory kicks in of like supply yeah. and demand and at some other time you there's not enough supply for the kind of skills you have and so it very directly translates into how much money you can make because you know ultimately this is a it's a market like you know employment is a market it's a marketplace like any other it is. marketplace yeah and the more rare and valuable you can be, the better you can have those conversations when it comes to compensation and equity. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back afterwards, and we're going to dig into a couple things. I want to dig into the double-down strategy, and we're, we'll talk a little bit about that from career growth. And then I want to pick your brain as somebody who is in the AI and ML space as far as how that's going to change the workplace going forward. We'll be right back. All right, and we are back here with the second half with Ratendra Datta. And Ratendra thinks about career in a way that I think is is refreshing. I think it's important for us to uh, listen to what he has to say. And he wrote a very interesting Medium article on the double down strategy that I think has enough quantitative information and qualitative information that helps us think about promotions in a completely different way. Can you give us a high level of the double down strategy? Yes. So I think like it's it's the very simple idea that I, I, I that's a there's a very specific thing around um, career growth and and doubling down uh, in that article. But at a high level, this is about taking much more ownership of your career. And mm. this is the, there are many many such strategies. Uh, which can ex- accelerate your career. This this specific one was more around the mindset of growth, because like nine out of ten times, um, like people don't really like think about beyond their next prom. Like when they think about promotions, they think about their next 
promotion only because that's how we've always been taught to think. But the problem with that is, like, I have a graph in that article, but it's basically the idea that you need a longer time to build skills for the next promotion. Yes. If you don't start now, and you start your clock starts as soon as you are ready. <laughs> your clock doesn't start after you got your next promotion. So if your right. next skill set requires two years, or th- let's say three years, and your next promotion is one year down the line, so by one strategy where you don't focus at all on your next promotion or promotion is a more specific way of representing like a, a career jump in some yes. some sense right there's a broader sense of this that's not very specific to you know the 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 notion of you know you get to level n plus 1 which is which is a specific invention of corporate america it's the more general concept here is like you do bigger and greater things and in order to do bigger and greater things you need to like have developed new skill sets that you were didn't have in your previous level, right? So, yeah, good. I know I was going to say let's go back to the example that we had earlier. I think it's very yeah. salient. So we yeah. talked about uh, team lead and then team lead manager, and we talked about for to get to a team lead, you're really managing work. You're saying I'm going to get a big piece of work. I'm going to carve it up. I'm going to give it to the team as a lead. And then I'm going to focus on that result coming back. And I'm going to roll that up to my manager. I'm not managing their career. I'm not mentoring them on sort of how they do or team interactions. And I'm not uh, putting money in and out of their pocket. Now, that's if I'm in one, I'm thinking, okay, how do I get to a team lead? You're working on this, uh, the work breakdown structure and getting it back. However, if you're thinking, uh, you know, doubling down and you're thinking beyond that, you're going to think the newest person who comes in on the team, let me work on some of my mentorship skills. And I heard you say this when you became the team lead, you all of a sudden started working on mentorship and doing other things that prepped you for the team lead manager. And that, that is really the double down strategy where you, you're looking at the next role and saying, what's the skill I need to stack on? If I start stacking that on when I get, before I get my first promotion, I'm now getting that runway of developing that skill, hardening it. Uh, and what I like about this uh, double down strategy is that creates actually much more sustainable careers because we have to stack these skills right? The skills that you have now have been stacked over years and years from where you were when you walked in the door at the intern. And if you, if you just tried to on onboard to the skills you have today, it wouldn't happen because you definitely need time. You need to have experiences. You need to have successes. You need to have failures. So the sooner we can look towards our career and understand what we want and start adopting that now, that will allow us to, I, I think, grow our career more sustainably. That's what I thought was the interesting part of your, your thesis. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a broader version of exactly like the, that cl- example was super classic. Like, you know, these are not technically promotions. I see individual right. contributor to tech lead to tech lead manager. While, a, while a te- as an IC, if you behave like both a tech lead and a tech lead manager without having those titles, both of those will come to you sooner than you think. If you start to think about management only after you've be, become a tech lead, then you've already lost a, a bunch of time. But what if you, from day one, 
no one will call you a manager from day one but what if you behave like one then they'll see that in you and that's the that's the strategy in action where everyone starts to think of you as a natural manager for that team and so that just works out similarly like you know when you do this double down strategy at a much bigger scale uh, again i learned this from one of my managers like when you when you're running a 10 person company uh, sorry an organization most people will think okay how do i scale this to 100 people but my manager said how do you scale this to 1000 people like from mm. 10 to 1000 seems like a huge jump but it's really you know it's all in your head how limited you want to be like you can still go and observe those vps that are running 1000 or senior vice presidents that are running 1000 plus person orgs like what do they do how do they scale you can start to observe them like nothing prevents you from thinking really big but right. not necessarily immediately getting there so like so that's overlapping that my that graph the timeline overlaps where you're building all sorts of skills in the same time you're not going to get those promotions or you know not, not going to get to run 1000 person orgs right away but you're you're ahead of everyone in your peer group who are not doing that because right. you started training for it before yeah. everyone else yeah you sh- you started getting in repetitions What are what are some of the common mistakes that you're seeing early stage engineers or early stage engineering managers making that are that are really avoidable? Not paying attention to communication skills, mm. written, verbal. I think a lot of people in tech and in America are not native English speakers, mm. but they they just instead of trying to do something about it they just like focus on the things they are good at like we all tend to tend to focus on what we are good at like that's a very common thing for yes. it's a human is human nature for us to yeah. do the things we are good at because we we get more and more appreciation we get addicted to that feedback loop of like getting more appreciation for what you're already good at and not venture to things that you're not good at because you know it's it's a, it is a it's a painful process to like you know expose yourself to something that you're not good at and then having a period where you're not appreciated for this new thing <laughs> yes. right so that's right i think it, it so but then like what if you started with written communication which is much easier mm. to pick up and then just got really good at it so that you know you don't speak much but everything you write about your technical work is immediately parsable by everyone and people start like looking up to you so that's number one number two is being very It, for especially for managers this is a huge mistake which is focusing too inward what does my team get to do what is my scope what is mm. like how do i benefit from this a lot of managers make the mistake of exposing their personal desires a little too quickly because <laughs> i mean we all aspire to grow like there's no right. there's no secret like we are we are humans everyone gets it right but when you're blatantly doing things that make you look selfish Oh, yes. I want this for my team. I want this scope. I want that. I think it really makes people think this person is going to grow up to be a politician and they're going to like <laughs> continue to fight for scope and not sometimes they would do that at the expense of the company's well-being. So ultimately like hmm. you know for especially for technical leaders and managers to come across as being company focused, putting company before yourself and your even your team, then suddenly like if you're able to project that then people trust you with more and more because they, they don't see you as too strongly tied to you, the little world that you live in right so again to repeat communi- like for especially for ics but also obviously important for managers uh, be a great communicator in whatever form of communication that is universally parsable 
it doesn't have to be verbal it can be written it can be i don't know maybe there are other ways to do it but typically it's between verbal and written and then the second one is about not being too selfish and inward focused especially when you communicate with your leadership team especially communicate with your peers you want to come across as i want to do the right thing for the company that's right and i think you want to believe that like again this really ties back to the earlier thing you said about equity compensation like as your compensation starts to get more and more tied to the equity of your company you ought to start to think in terms of the company because your finance is not tied to your personal team's contributions alone it starts to get more and more tied to the whole company's success so you ought to think in terms of you know if you're if there's a competition going on between you and some other teams for some scope for some this is by the way this is happening in every company in ai oh, oh yes yes inside of every everyone wants a seat at the table when it when it's when it concerns ai and this internal fights going on around these things in every company in the whole world <laughs> i'll end, end there because i think that can get that that's a different conversation but well, my point is about not being selfish yeah not being selfish yeah and i i think you know, the communication is so important because nobody's going to tell your story for you. And I'm sure you've seen this too. And this, this also goes to the career growth as well. If, if you believe that you're going to get to a, a director, a manager, a head of a function, and you don't have to tell stories and you don't have to communicate succinctly, you're wrong. Because storytelling communication becomes so important because we're communicating up all the time, justifying budget, ju- you know, discussing why things are delayed or if, if we need things from other teams, we need to be able to articulate that clearly. And so communication is, is absolutely critical. And then thinking like an owner of the company and focusing most on what is the company focused on the customer? If so, then we all need to be aligning to what the company wants because that's ultimately going to allow this asset to grow in value that benefits us arguably more than the paycheck. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just say one thing, exactly what you said, you summarized it well. I think though ultimately we are all serving ourselves and our close you know, loved ones and whatnot. So it just changes the time horizon, right? Yeah. Like basically like, if you're fighting for the company, ultimately you're still serving yourself. It's not altruistic in any way. You right. are just making a better financial decision for the long term for you and your family in some sense by focusing on the company. So it's like it's somewhat myopic to think that you know you'll make a little bit more money, get that next promotion or whatever. But what if you just really cared about the company? Then you suddenly your company is so much more successful that the leverage is much higher with that. Right. So I do want to take the conversation towards the direction of AI and this very powerful tool set that's that's entering companies and engineering in engineering teams right now. You know what you know what are you seeing how are you seeing this play out, you know, not just at Databricks but I'm sure that you have your ear to the ground in other companies as well. Uh how do you see this, you know, benefiting teams? What do you see some of the risks? So First of all, like I've seen AI in companies for for 14 years now, right? Yeah. So it's just because gone mainstream more recently thanks to, you know, OpenAI and ChatGPT's, you know, phenomenal growth. Uh, and basically like it became a household thing because, you know, the generative AI in particular. I mean, in my world, I have two kinds of AI, right? Like 
supervisor. I mean, there are multiple. Uh, there's a smaller group of other right, kinds, but sets. like, yeah. But the big ones are supervised learning, which is mm-hmm. machine learning that is basically saying, if I can, if I give you this data point, can you tell me which category or what you know number it maps to? Right. That's the basic, overly simple, simplistic version of supervised AI. Right. And then there's generative AI, where you're giving a prompt and you're getting a lot of content back. Like it's no longer just saying yes or no for zero or one point mm. five it's actually giving you so um i think it's called the the generative ai portion of ai has caught the fascination of people because that's the ai we uh, grew up watching on in, in hollywood like supervised ai is Im- super important but boring like, oh can you <laughs> right. tell if this is a cat picture of a cat or a dog like how do you even like it's important because every single day a google search is powered by thousands of such you know classification decisions right Right. Or even like if you're using Gmail, you know, the spam filtering is is one of the most powerful AI pieces that improves your life on a daily basis, but no one talks about it, right? Like spam filtering is is leaps and bounds ahead of the Yahoo mail or hotmail days where you know right. we were full of spam and like only uh, you know, so you had to really filter. Like you're literally wasting uh, some chunk of your time every day sifting through a bunch of email. Now these newer email clients are just like classifying all the emails into categories, and you just it really helps you focus on the, what's important, saving you a ton of time. But no one talks about that. That's like the kind of AI that I grew up on. But then I also was working generative AI for discrimination. It's a different topic. Like generative AI was also being used when I was in grad school. I actually built mm. generative models like 14 years, um, 15 years back, not for the purpose of generating text, but for explaining things because th- there's this idea that, you know, if you generate something, then you have the best vision view of the world. And right. then using that generation, then you can tell the difference. Then you can do supervised classification. In the ter- anyway, that's a separate topic. Coming back to your question about like how I'm seeing this play out, I, I'm not an expert uh, to talk about the whole industry and how how everyone is doing it. From my like personal viewpoint, yes, uh, I'm seeing a lot of noise in this space. That is, people are very worried about what is going to happen if they don't jump on the AI bandwagon, but they don't know what it is. They're somewhat <laughs> yes. clueless. Like, there's not enough experts out there to explain to them which part of this AI boom is valuable. The funny thing is everyone wants to do generative AI, but a lot of companies haven't even gone through the process of doing supervised classification of the things that mm. would make their daily lives immediately better. They go straight to generative AI because because chat GPT. Right. Um, and I hope eventually this thing rationalizes to the point where AI, the broader umbrella of AI itself becomes a much used technology in every single company. Some of it is generative, some of it, some of it is discriminative, which means that in some some AI is just deciding, do you do this, do you do that? That's just mm. super useful. And then yes. you also use generative AI to write your you know presentations, improve your you know company's documentation. You're writing those documentations using a lot of context from within your company. And the other thing that I think generally companies don't realize is how much data they're sitting on each company yeah. sitting on a gold mine of data that they're it's true they're, they could use for both discrimination and generation of content mm. which i think when knowledgeable consultants start to talk to these companies they're going to start to tell them hey i'm so glad you're paying attention to, to ai 
thank you for for paying attention to this that you ignored for a decade um, <laughs> yes. by the way by the way do the simple thing first and then go go into this more complex thing and i think it will start to like play out in a very meaningful way where everyone is going to benefit from ai but uh, the catalyst was something but the outcome was something else i think that's how it's going to play out for the next 5 years and then eventually i don't really i have not really thought deeply about like how this is going to evolve over a very long time horizon right but over the next 3 to 5 years the attention it's it's basically like uh, apple released the iphone everyone started building mobile uh, mobile phone based applications but they also started building for android they started building for blackberry they started like so the catalyst was one thing but it impacted the broader ecosystem is how i see it well and and i think you're bringing to life some of the stuff that i've been hearing from other people too and i think it's important to you know, have somebody with your experience talk about this is we're in that phase where I, I call this more of the excitement and wonder phase and that can, can, you know, turn to a little concern and worry. The reality is, you know, we're, we're just, especially on the generative AI side, just trying to understand the value that it can bring to the table. And this technology needs to mature over the next couple of years to really become useful. Yep. Yep, exactly. And I think it will happen. Uh, I think it's just a matter of time. And like, I think, again, there'll be a caustic, cascading set of companies and their timelines of when they get there. Mature companies like like Google in particular, like Google built all of this before everyone else in a, mm. at scale. Uh, they were very careful about releasing all these things because, you know, they're always under scrutiny. They don't want to mess things up. So, but... You know, compare that to like some traditional bank, for example, right? Their their time horizon starts now. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're, gonna, they're just going to have to accelerate to the point where they're competitive with the more technical banks mm. that they're competing with, right? Okay, so that's that's a good point to tease out. It's the companies that haven't, you know, been incorporating this into their tech stack are going to need to start exploring and figuring out what are the the one, two, three steps they need to be taking now because in four or five years, the companies that have been working on it are going to now be uh, at a completely different level of maturity. Yeah. And like a classic example I think of is Capital One versus like a lot of these smaller mm. credit unions. Like, or I, I'm sure there are other banks also like that are not very technical and like Capital One was technical way before all of these other companies. They had like AI teams and data science teams before all these other companies. I think so. I'm not an expert at this, but what I know is that Capital One was ahead in that banking space from a technological perspective. And uh, the other companies, if they want to compete, they have to catch up very quickly. They have to they have to, they have to do that in an accelerated timeline because otherwise, like. You know the gap will just keep increasing or right. stay constant. They have to bridge the gap, right. mm. and and yeah, and try and accelerate its closure. Interesting. So then, do you see any immediate impacts, or or I'd say like in the next twelve to twenty four months, and just in the general workspace, you know, in in tech around generative AI? Yeah, I think the way people are talking about this is again, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I agree with this vision, which is that AI is not going to take people's jobs, but employees who are getting the assistance, maximizing the assistance from generative AI are going to 
outperform those that are not doing that mm. it's a very it's a safe thing to say because it's like less controversial like ai is taking our jobs but like all it says is everyone should start to use ai in their in their you know in their world right in however they work incorporate that into their you know process so that everything they do is just better and when everyone else is doing that you 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 start to like your actual progress slows down imagine like the difference between writing a, let's say you're tasked with you're a tech writer for a company you're tasked with writing a documentation for a new feature your company is building like that's your job now between two such people the person that starts out with a draft from some kind of large language model like mm-hmm. llama or open ai or, or mistral or, or or mosaics models you end up with a reasonable first draft and then iterating tweaking it getting the facts right removing hallucinations and all of that <laughs> is 10x faster similarly with co-programmers in in uh, if you start with a draft of some you describe something you want to solve and you know these llms generate some code for you and then you like realize oh there's a bug here and this is this uh, this this is not exactly what it, again 10x so people are generating content generating code all of them need to start using generative ai immediately otherwise they're immediately going to their 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 counterparts are going to get a you know get a head start mm. and so but you know unfortunately what i think it also means is that there will be fewer jobs in the down the line in, in the creative space because i i, I this is my guess mm. is like if you do everything 10x faster but the the need the the demand is not 10x more mm. some something's got to give right like if everyone's 10x more productive but the need is only 2x more that there's a gap that's created which, no, right there's a, yeah. essentially you have more productive people that are out there that are able to fill more of the gap versus those that don't and you know what i'm hearing very clearly is it's important for all of us to start learning and adopting to you know generative ai right now yeah. uh to to essentially stay stay ahead of the curve right no, yeah. don't get behind the gap yeah and I, I i have a very specific example and i'm heartbroken basically because i have lots of recruiter friends people mm. in tech recruiting lot of them have lost jobs recently it's just heartbreaking to see this like so many so much of that that's not generative ai but that's like ai broader ai of like just sifting through resumes filtering them mm. down like those a lot of these jobs are sort of getting replaced by some kind of ai agent that is doing this at scale and and companies are okay with missing out on some good candidates because mm. they're sifting through them they're getting a few good ones they're missing out on a few good ones but they tolerate that the saving that they make out of swapping mm. humans for you know ai based sourcing is so much more compelling that they they just don't need that many sources they don't that need that many recruiters and every single company is i've i know of has had had some kind of recruiting layoff or you know people people operations layoffs of some kind which is pretty heartbreaking but you know like it also means that certain categories of jobs are just going to be less needed like the supply demand curve across the spectrum of different types of jobs is going to shift 
because right. of yeah that's i think that's the most meta thing i can say about the question <laughs> that you which is uh, you know i i give some specific examples but i think what you're saying this this going to be a shift in distribution between supply and demand yeah there's going to be a shift in distribution and the more that you can adopt this new technology and understand where you can build skills and where you can play a role i think is important because you know more than anything working in technology we have to constantly stay ahead of it stay current to try to get ahead so that we can understand where's the where the opportunity is yep yep well thank you for that before we go we usually wrap up with a fire round so i'm going to ask you five questions right now just some some crisp succinct answers and we'll get out of here okay so what is the worst career advice you've ever received fight for your scope ooh fight for your scope that goes against what you said earlier uh number 2 how do you keep learning just keep your eyes and ears open everywhere you go treat every moment of your life as a learning opportunity mm. because everything everything you learn is transferable that's huge what do you do to recharge your batteries I am a filmmaker and a theater director and a, sc- a screenwriter. I get huge amounts of relaxation from storytelling and just watching great movies as well because that's where I also get ideas. So that's a really nice feedback loop. Oh, that's great. What's the advice you give your younger self in tech? Don't obsess over details. Get the big picture right as soon as possible and mm. use a top-down strategy in even the most detailed little things that you do because it's very easy to lose you know the reference frame of mm. what you're doing within the grand scheme of things and that's something that changes the way you do everything and finally what soft skill has helped your career the most storytelling and communication because that's something that I've also said earlier is that changes the way people perceive you whether it's good it's fair or not i don't know but it does change people's perception like people who speak most succinctly even mm-hmm. when they overhear that from someone else who did all the work people then go to that person in the future instead of the person who did the work it's a it's an unfair advantage to be good at communication but it it really is and i i think more and more people need to understand that Well, Ritendra, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, I've taken a lot away from this and I know everybody else has too. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having it. It was such a fa- fascinating conversation. A lot of questions required me to think a lot. Rethink a lot of thought things that <laughs> thoughts I had earlier. Yeah. Well, appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today with Ritendra. I hope you got a ton of value from it. I do want to ask you one thing. If you want more insights around career and what's happening in the job market, what are the skills that you need to learn? Also, what are some key fundamental skills that we need to build as we're growing our wealth? I would ask that you subscribe to Tech Career and Money News. That's right, techcareersandmoneynews.com is our latest offering, which is a publication that comes out weekly that gives you a lot of insights around career, money, and what is happening when it comes to equity compensation and the companies that you want to work for. Please subscribe now.